Hi there, Matt. It's Marla Maples here in New York City, and I've been told what a great job you're doing in PR and public affairs with the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. So great job, and congratulations on everything that's going on there with Resh Strategies there in Michigan, and just wishing you the happiest, happiest of holiday seasons. Merry Christmas, God bless, and love from my heart to yours. Keep up the great work and keep making people smile. Aw, Marla, right back at you. You're making me smile too. That's Marla Maples, everyone. And today we talk with a PhD holding professor and researcher at Michigan State about polling, voters, and political campaigns. You're listening to the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. Are we recording a new intro this season? Why? I'm just wondering. Are you saying that you've had enough of Sarah Humphrey? No, 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 no. I, mean, I, I love Sarah. I would like Sarah. to be a part of the intro. I think that right. would be nice. Well, why don't we work that little line in? That was good. Yeah. I'll, I'll find a spot for it. Welcome to Cold Oatmeal, a podcast by the Rush Strategies team about PR and public affairs. Really. I was distracted staring at Joe's Cold Oatmeal. Yeah, well, it's here. He's got it on his It's, it's always right here. here. It's always here. And by the way, the, the, the ratio of like, fruit to disgusting, like 1 to 10. It's got some disgusting stuff in some fruit. There's nothing disgusting. One part fruit. What's, what, what in there is disgusting? I don't even know what's in it, but it, it looks like cucumber mash. Maybe a couple of chopped apple. Did you have Burger King for breakfast? What was your? <laughs> okay, welcome back. You are listening to the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. My name is Matt Resch, Resch Strategies. Uh, we are a public affairs and a public relations firm located in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, you can find us at reschstrategies.com. Uh, we are also on Twitter, on Facebook, on and Instagram at Resch Strategies. All of our podcasts, uh, this is number 28, um, are listed on our website. Uh, you can also find them on iTunes. Um, if you would be so kind, if you are an iTunes listener, always give us a, a rating uh, on there. That's always good. Um, our good friend Stephanie is is ill today. She's she's called in ill, so she's not going to be with us. But I do want to go around the room quick and everyone say hello. Joe Beshi. Nick DeLue. Laura Beal. Nikki O'Meara. So, Laura, Welcome. This Thank is your you. first. This is the first podcast where you actually have to talk. Darn. You were with us before, <laughs> but you just laughed a couple times from a distance. That's what I do best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can <laughs> Except help. Except for writing, I do well at that too. Okay, well that's good. <laughs> You've been with us now for six days, right? Six days. Good. Came back for week two. Good. We were all relieved. <laughs> weren't quite sure. Well, good. Um, so our guest today um, uh, is a professor. Political science at Michigan State University, uh, Corwin Schmidt, um, and Corey is can be routinely found commenting on voting, politics, and places like Time Magazine, uh, the Washington Post, New York Times, and Politico. Um, he studies voters and voting patterns and polling and campaigns and the media, and we've got some questions about all of those things. But first, first a word about Marla. Um, who wants to? Who wants? Because I wasn't a part of the Marla bringing Marla to the podcast. It's a shame Stephanie's oh, not it's here. It's a shame yeah. Stephanie's Stephanie not here. Needs to be here for that. Nick, I mean, this is kind of yeah. What, what do you want to know? I mean, she's awesome. She's she's amazing. So Marla was did our did a little message here for the intro. Yeah, I was surprised that leading into Christmas with probably the one, the best Christmas gift I've ever been given. That's wow. awesome. That that's we like to hear that. That's sad. <laughs> I, I'm pleased. I hope that's not true. Considering yeah. we weren't sure about it, that's high praise. It was good. Stephanie was pretty sure. 
She was very confident. Yeah. We'll give her that. So yeah, Marla. Marla is a part of the, the Christmas present. And we might have some other some other visitors throughout this podcast. I, I like to I like to think this is a kind of the sublime and the ridiculous of this podcast, having a, a PhD professor on political science and <laughs> some of the characters that we will be be uh, welcoming with us here. So. Yep. Well, good. I, I never followed the tabloid stuff. You know, I know there was there there have been many women of Donald Trump and Marla Maples, you know, is among them. But she's definitely my favorite now. She was a wife. Oh, yeah. She, wasn't she was a wife. Woman. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and I see why she's popular. Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Well, made my Christmas. Idea? Wife number two. Right. Yeah, she's up there on the list. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's not a long list. There's only three of them. She's before there? Melania. Right. Well, we'll get more into that, but but Corey, thanks for being with us. Sure, um, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> welcome. We have some questions, and you cover lots and do research and lots of things. But you know, we do a lot of work with um, political affairs, public uh, camp, political campaigns, and a lot of times people ask questions about polling, uh, those kinds of things, and we wanted to get a, a real expert in here to help us uh, talk about some of these things. So I'm going to start with with a question for you, which is just. What in the bloody hell is going on in this country right now? With polling or with polls? Just in general, like just the, 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 with voters and with what people are saying and thinking and, and doing. What's your, what's your take from where you sit? Uh, well, that's a big question. Uh, but I'll just say that the, uh, on the polling side of things, it's really hard to know all this because um, there's fewer organizations doing credible long-term polling of the same questions over time. So we really don't know what's going on. Uh, Pew is probably one that keeps on doing things uh, in a nice manner or a sort of a reputable manner and in the same way over time. So you can sort of track what's going on. Uh, That said, uh, a lot of people are just angry about politics. So when they get a poll, uh, they want to, in some cases, maybe they're not so honest. They just want to yell at the screen at the phone or yell at the internet and say, this is, the, this is what's wrong. Uh, so, so we actually have, I don't, this is maybe way off what you're asking, but we actually, you can actually show when you pay people, they change their opinions on a survey. Do people pay? Or is that say just like, uh, you know, is the economy doing well or poorly right now? And then they say, oh, poorly. And then you say, okay, what if we paid you $2 for, you know, has the GDP gone up or down? And it's only, it's like, oh, it's been good, right? So, <laughs> is that are they lying? So there's two. Yeah, the it's not like they're saying they're lying. So one thing is like, um, how much of this is about expressing one's discontent, right? Yeah. So if it's about expression, and they're then they're expressing their discontent, but then the way they go about expressing that may be, you know, exaggerating things. Okay. And so, um, so we call these like. Accuracy motives versus directional motives. There's a nice scholarly uh, yeah. set of terms for you. you just raise the IQ level of this yes. podcast. By uh, so when people points. answer a question, they have both sort of intent for expressing like the direction they think things are going, and then also for the intent of how accurate you know they, they want that response to be. And so you can raise the accuracy level by doing a couple different things. Another another way. I mean, this is old school psych stuff, you could ask people to first state an essay about how, who they are and what, they, what kind of person they are. And after that, you can start asking them questions and they're not as guarded and they're more open, open to sort of input. 
Do pollsters use these? No, the, it's the takes pol- too much money. Way no. too much time. All right. And too much money if you're paying everybody two bucks to... Right. So yeah. academic, yeah. I mean, the old school academic surveys that talk in person, face to face, those are very, very few and very, very rare. And um, so to get at those types of questions uh, and to know how people are doing like in a social framework where it's not just yelling at a computer, it's really hard. Okay. Or, or a phone operator or somebody. How, where would you place kind of on we get the sense right now is that everyone's really ticked off. Yes. That's the that's anger. Anger. And I had a professor once. I, I started a, a paper once in college um, where I, I, I made some historical statement about the 60s being a tumult, like the most tumultuous decade in American history. And then he threw five more decades right back in my face. And so, oh, this, the Civil War was pretty tumultuous. Right. And the Revolutionary, <laughs> that was pretty tumultuous. So, and it was kind of know like this all. cautionary tale about like, don't go say making these absolute statements. So I think in the, we're in this real moment and, we, and there's anger everywhere. But so, as someone who studied voting patterns and the, and the populace, how angry do you think we are compared to other times? So there's a difference between, I think sometimes people think about anger and they think about it politically, and that's probably what you're referring to. And I think one issue is the focus of our anger and differences is in political terms right now. Whereas before, um, there were a lot of racial differences, class differences, that kind of cross-party differences. So it wasn't seen as much in political discourse among elites. Now it's kind of centralized in political discourse among elites. So among elected officials, among, you know, party leaders, among, you know, even, you know, talking heads on TV and whatnot. So now that you see those centralized, it looks like, well, we talk about politics a lot and politics is angry. So it seems like a lot of anger. So the question is, oh, like, how does this compare to right before the Civil War? Um, I mean, there was a lot of anger right before the Civil War about a lot of different things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not quite there. Uh, I, I don't think, but we don't have surveys to actually document where we are. In terms of the 60s and 70s, um, you know, with anti-war attitudes, you know, we go in and out. You know, the, the, the divides are more also more apparent among richer individuals, where in the past it's been a, the divides have been among the poor. And so when you have rich people who are angry at each other, that gets heard more often. Is that because rich people have the luxury of being able to pay close attention to this and poor people are actually having to work? Somewhat. So some of it's regional divides, you know, cultural divides. And that's, you want to talk about, you know, flyover country versus coasts, that's fine. But it's really among, when you look among, say, like measures of, you know, political polarization, as we say, if you look at cultural divisions attitudes on these hot button cultural issues it's much more apparent among the rich than among the poor and those people fund things and they give money for things and those people are audiences that uh, organizations like to talk to so then we hear a lot about it so how much of this do you think is i guess i'll use the word manufactured by those rich angry people and how much of it is authentic well okay uh, I can't really say whether it's manufactured or authentic. It's mm-hmm. certainly real. I think in some cases when people say manufactured, they want... I guess a, paid for. How yeah, much of this is um, being orchestrated? No, I, I mean, I think some of it is amplified by the incentives of our system. Okay. There's another scholarly, right? So, um, <laughs> right? so we hear more about it because of how, because of who politicians seek out as audiences and who news people seek out as audiences and that stuff. 
then resonates more. Uh, no one's, you know, those divisions that may have been among, you know, lower class individuals before. So, for instance, um, I know we're getting, it's somewhat coming, you know, back into being a prominent political issue, but racial divisions were somewhat much more like a lower class issue than a higher class issue. And so, you know, the, the, if you want to call insider, you know, Washington insiders or just any prominent group was much more unified among those fronts. And so the rhetoric would have been more heated in your neighborhood than you would have seen on TV. I want to shift gears a little bit because you, yeah. you study lots of different things. But you said to me in the email that we exchanged when we were setting up this interview, your quote was, I've been playing around with predicting voter turnout. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> let me just read something. So on November 5th of last year, um, one day before the election here in Michigan, you put out a paper where you predicted voter turnout in Michigan would be 57.1%. Of registered voters. Of registered, and the actual turnout was 575 So pr- you pretty much nailed it. I got it pretty good. <laughs> so for someone who's playing around with predicting, how'd you do that? So it's it's really easy in that sense because the primary election was a really good indicator of the general election. So those people who were angry, so you could argue the primary election in August was a pretty good temperature gauge of people who were angry. And we had a lot of competitive statewide races um, in the primary, but also competitive d- district uh, district contests that were prelude to turnout come November. So basically what you do is you you take everybody's voter history. I mean, uh, I mean, professionals have all this information. This is public information. You pay $23 to the state of Michigan. You, actually, they gave me a file. It was empty the other day. I had to yell at them. Uh, <laughs> um, they, were, they were more than accommodating. It was their mistake. Uh, and you pay $23, they give you this huge file, and then you just sort of look at people's voter history, and then you just say, are you a type of person who turns out in general elections, just primary elections? Are you a type of person who turns out in this type? Well, how old are you? Where do you live? And you just run that, and it's based on basically history. And you know, usually after a couple elections, we have a pretty good idea of what kind of voter you are. And then, um, yeah, it did, it did, yeah, and the separation in the counties was pretty good. I just got the data, the corrected data, and so I have to go at the precinct level and look at that. But it's not hard to predict voter turnout. Do you think it's going to be harder uh, after the passage of Proposal 3? So um, I expressed some dismay, and John Robbins, uh, someone at Catalyst, who I converse with on Twitter. So Catalyst is a Washington-based kind of professionalized voter file group said the models really don't differ that much when you go to like uh, automatic same day, election day registration type groups. Hmm. Um, there are other reasons to be concerned. Uh, it's a lot more, since all those requirements are now more taxing on the local clerks and uh, we rely on them to be good and we have 1,600 local election clerks who run elect- voter registration efforts and they just report to the state. So our ability to get that information quickly may be hampered by their putting a lot of more requirements on them to do certain things. Is this the first time you, you did this, or have you done this? I've played time? around with it before. I gave it to candidates for free once, um, and I looked at – see. so do you want – this is kind of scholarly. 
Hey, we're okay. We're, so we're uh, talking to a scholar. <laughs> we can handle it. <laughs> so you know, so campaigns are getting really technical and analytic based, and um, one thought is that might turn off people from running for office because it's a numbers game. It's not an ideas game. It's a numbers game. And if you make it about a numbers game, how does that make candidates feel about? So this all goes back to me working on for someone in 2002 state rep primary. And uh, all that person wanted to do was have meet and greets. And I was like, you just need 2,000 voters. You just need 2,000 voters. <laughs> you just need 2,000 voters. And just, you know, utterly, un, you know, didn't care about the numbers, just wanted to do the talking. And so um, I sent some people the numbers, and then I asked them how they felt about campaigning afterwards. And it's a small sample, but the numbers weren't so good in terms of people when you gave them like free turnout predictions uh, people weren't um, candidates this was local school board candidates they didn't feel as confident about their skills running a campaign they expressed less willingness to run for a campaign again that despite or maybe because of the camp those campaigns were slightly more competitive uh, I don't know if that was because of me or something else can't be definitive but uh, so I was I don't want to go around throwing out free predictions if it makes everybody mad or upset <laughs> about campaigning. Well, to keep some of these people from running for office, it might be a nice thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, some people th th think it's just about having like going to these community functions and talking. And it's true. And that's what they like. And uh, but if you make it a numbers game, yeah, it may dissuade people if they just think it's just about something very mechanical they may like it less. How often do you observe a campaign or a candidate and think they're doing it all wrong? I don't. Uh, I, I'm more interested in, like, I want people to try wrong things because maybe they'll be right and I'm wrong. Okay. Uh, for instance, I like it when the convention – I like it when the conventional wisdom is wrong. And, like, this is not – I mean, I would – there's certain, like, modes of – Success, right? And I mean, some in some ways, it's a waste of money, right? I get that, and but in other cases, you like, try something different. Uh, so I kind of like people who do things differently and maybe doing it wrong and seeing if it's a disaster. Uh, was it in 2012 where Romney suddenly went to Pennsylvania, uh, and that was kind of like in some ways silly, uh, but in some ways it's like that was great because that was not the firewall and suddenly like you change the game and you know I don't think Romney was ever going to win Pennsylvania but certainly uh, you know this idea of certain firewall states and like let's suddenly change what states we're interested in um, that kind of stuff is kind of interesting to me. So I'm curious you know you just said you we're not going to pay you for your prediction here but in, in 2016 um, when Hillary and, and Trump ran turnout was the lowest point in 20 years. I'm re I read this anyway. That's what, that's what that's what someone reported. Yeah, that's a high water. I mean, 20 years, yeah, that would be about right. But that's those are over some really high turnout elections. So we then come two years later, and our turnout in Michigan for the midterms was the highest it's been since the 70s. Right. So what's going to happen in 2020? I don't know. Um, <laughs> a couple things to keep in mind, though, we had the highest level of con competitive districts at the congressional level that we've had, we had had just in terms of candidates running who had sufficient funding. 
that was the highest in both the primary and in the general election that we had had in a long time. So in some cases there was extreme turnover, there was just a lot of quality, we call them quality challengers, and there was just a high number of quality challengers. And we also had very competitive primaries that pushed people towards participating in the general. So it's partly a candidate thing. Uh, the other thing is people are getting older, state's getting older. As people get older, turnout gets high. Uh, other things is people count turnout wrong. In a lot of states, we exclude, we count people who are in prison or people who are returning citizens who aren't allowed to vote or immigrants. And if you actually look at the amount of people who can register to vote and vote and you look at the number of counting, we're actually okay. We're sort of at a similar level to like the 1960s. I mean, at least in terms of the bottom. And certainly we've gone higher. So turnout's not, turnout is actually very high right now. Uh, historically speaking, given the expansion of the electorate, elect, since we expanded 18-year-olds to vote. So turnout's pretty pretty high. And uh, it'd be more intrigued to see it go down. Well, I, I was reading an, an, another bit of work you did that was cited in Vox in 2016, mm-hmm. um, discussing the extinction of the swing voter. Yes. Um, and I, I wrote it down so I would remember the quote that Vox had here. And it fascinated me, and I, I just wanted to get your reaction to it. It said, we know swing voters are going extinct because of a political scientist named Corwin Smith. I, I imagine for any kind of scientist, that's kind of, that kind of credit's nice. Like, we know the alpaca is going extinct because of no, a scientist I don't, named Steve I didn't Irwin. say it was going extinct. Okay. See, that's the, yeah. Well, I'm scared of Vox. darn journalists. Vox is really, yeah, Vox is really hard. But, but they've given you credit for identifying this trend. I mean, do you, bear, do you feel responsibility now no, to, so to, the, actually, to the swing to, voter? So actually, they're walking it back now because they, they, they claimed it was going extinct. It's just going down. Um, and if you actually look at the sheer numbers. Now, I would point this out. One issue is with campaigns is we're so much better at predicting turnout than we are being able to persuade understanding what persuades people. So we're so much better at knowing how to get people to turn out to vote or identifying those. So predicting turnout was really easy, right? That's the point. It's very cost effective to just focus on mobilization. And so that makes it harder to do uh, persuasive targeting. And so we've seen this trend in that regards, but we also see that people just are so inundated with political stuff that they already have firm opinions about the parties already that they just seem unaware or they they seem unwilling to sort of consider differences or that a candidate might differ from the party. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, if you actually look at the numbers of people who do swing, it's still like five, six percent of the electorate that uh, that's if you think about turning one person out to vote, that counts as one point. If you think about switching someone from one side to the other, that counts as two points. So even if you're half as successful at persuading someone as you are turning out to vote, that still can be equal amount of voters. So to say that they're going extinct is a little, they were kind of high. <laughs> so you're not, you're not going to turn that credit into like a fellowship somewhere, right? No, the no, scientists no. In fact, there's a trend. lot of people writing about how that's wrong, and they do that to convince. So when I wrote that, everybody in D.C. kind of grabbed onto it because they're like, yeah, this is why – this is why Clinton thinks that she can win and it doesn't matter who we nominate in a party. And this is, you know, it was used as like a DC rationale and I'm not really reactive to that, but some political scientists who are, um, 
we're much more now trying to document the actual number of people who do switch from one party to the next each election. And that's still, it's still a small number. The point is it goes, it's down. It's, right. it's small. And it's down and less people are open to being persuaded and changing their opinions. Uh, but, uh, you know, is it, is it so small that you should ignore that? That's, the, that's sort of the, the question that's going on. So I want to take a second. We have a, we have a friend of the podcast, um, Zach Gorchow. Um, who finds a way to sneak himself onto this onto this platform often? It's getting a little annoying, but um, he we had a we had him on right before Thanksgiving. Uh, did a little uh, election recap, and we asked him. This was part of the, the famous golden turkeys. You probably have heard about. The, you've probably heard of the golden turkeys. I heard somewhat. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, um, in one of the questions, I'm gonna and we're gonna play here in a second. Zach's little tirade. Um, it's about as worked up as Zach gets. It's not about um, Michigan State's offensive coordinator. Um, but I'm gonna play. I want to play this. What what he said about uh, polling in the campaign. I want to get your reaction. So let's flip the question. So the second golden turkey, the least important, most overreported story of the campaign. Well, I, I'll get up on my soapbox about yes, this. Here we go. Uh, polls. Polls. Like, there's just the. Uh, I, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to pick on anyone specifically here, but there's something I've started calling it the polling media political consultant industrial complex, <laughs> and that'll catch on. The problem. <laughs> right. That's a know, Twitter, that is also really a Twitter winner. For, right. That's that's really made for a hashtag. Um, or for you know it, it's and it's not you know Jonathan's paper employs a really good pollster. Glenn Gariff, so I, I think no they do. A, taken. They do a really good job with it, and I think they ask, they've asked really good questions. So it's less about that, uh, and more about these sort of fly-by-night more pollsters who who just throw stuff into the ether that isn't vetted through good journalistic practices, um, but then it gets seized upon, um, you know, by by some media entities, and I'm not going to exempt us because in the past we would have been one of those media. We, you know, we would, a poll comes out, uh, may, maybe we're not that familiar with it, but we'd write about it. We'd hold deadline to write about it. Um, but you, you talk to the people who work in the industry now, and it's like when one of these polls comes out, no matter how checkered the pollster's reputation, no matter how poorly it may have been interpreted, it freezes the news cycle for like 24 to 72 hours and just everything stops. It seems to affect everything that's happening. Um, and I just, you know, I think there's definitely an important place for um, public opinion surveying, but I think a combination of the public and in some cases us not knowing how to interpret those numbers. You know, the good example, there was a, a poll, again, not the Detroit News, uh, that came out uh, earlier in the cycle, during the cycle that showed the race, I think it said eight, an eight point margin, if I remember. Um, and it was uh, interpreted, maybe it was six, doesn't matter. It was interpreted by the reporter writing it that the race was tightening based on comparing that to a poll done by a different pollster using, of course, different methodology and a different uh, surveying system. Um, but because one was smaller than the other, the headline in the story was, uh, the race could be tightening. And it froze every, you know, then, you know, what does the shooty campaign do? This becomes their whole thing. They then are driving this with their social media, 
their press releases be like, this race is getting closer. Um, you know, uh, the Whitmer campaign then starts pushing back. You know, people, th this drives fundraising. I mean, and you know, this is where I think it gets into really dangerous territory for us in the news media about how we want to do these horse race polls is it can affect the whole trajectory of a race. Mm -hmm. You know, you, all of a sudden, uh, candidate A can get on the phone and be like, hey, I know you were holding out on donating, but look, we've got survey from, you know, pollster F that says I'm within this number of points. I mean, it, it, it's really, and it really is to me getting into risky territory. I, I do think there is a real value to the surveying when it comes to the mood of the public, um, what issues resonate, what's not resonating. But the horse race stuff, uh, it, it's, it's tricky territory because too many uh, media outlets are still referring to candidate A, 43, candidate B, 42 as leading. And I don't, I just, it just boggles my mind that that we're still at a point where it's not shown that this is a statistical dead heat. So, sorry, I went off on a rant, but. <laughs> How do you react to Zach's commentary there on polls in the media? All right, well, I mean, I mean, there's kind of comments there about polling, one, and two, about how we, so how we make inferences from polls, mm -hmm. and then two, about how we report about polls. Now, I would say that the whole on the reporting aspect, that's less my game. <laughs> um, I, I would point out, though, that uh, in terms of the fundraising thing, in some ways, actually, when you do worse on a poll, it actually gets more money because then suddenly the people who like this candidate who thinks they're going to drop out or lose then get more money. So in some ways, when we look at presidential primary stuff, when your candidate does worse, you also get more money than expected. People think they're going to win. Then they start doing bads like, oh, I got to give them money so they win. So there's 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 a give and take there. Two, um, I, you know, if yeah, I get the headline thing, but um, you know what? Um, how many polls were done in like the Stabenow John James race uh, that you know you could argue, yeah, that tightening comment about Shooty sort of drove fundraising. That's ethical, but you could also say the failure to poll also might withhold people from behaving in a way that they should. So it's all information. I don't, I mean, to me, it's just, I, I'm an experienced consumer of polls. I have a, I have a good understanding of that. Um, this idea that it might drive fundraising. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> look at Huckabee in 2008 and, or, you know, and I, I mean, just look at like these early small states, early polling, like Ben Carson. Yeah, like just look at these things. Yeah, it does drive fundraising, um, but it also drives people's attention. Like other people don't pay attention to it until these polls come out and you report about this. So if that's the way the industry works and that's the only way people start paying attention to the campaign, uh, I guess I don't, that's, I, I'm not gonna like, I don't like, don't make normative assessments about stuff like that. But I just, in some cases, um, the failure to do so is also a choice, and that's just as that can be just as biased. So. so, as someone who knows polling and knows how this works, yeah, when you see a story on TV or in, on in the in paper, yeah. what's the first thing you look for? Right, I'll go to the cross tabs to say, okay, is it <laughs> is this legit? Uh, but you know, most of us. So, first of all, I don't, don't really. Okay, I don't want to go on pollsters in Michigan. I don't really trust any pollster in Michigan. In Michigan or? In, in Michigan. Um, some of the more reputable ones, if you look at their cross tabs, they're, they're doing something that doesn't make sense. Um, 
they just it's statistically improbable for what they're saying they're doing to get the same results that they always get. Hmm. Um, and they're, that's part of the game. They got their own weights. They're pushing the button somewhere. They're, they're making a game. I understand it. And they might be better, smarter than the data. They might know when their data is wrong and they might, but they got reputations to put on the line. So they're, they're, there's, there's some, I, I mean, there's some things like if you keep on looking at the party ID, party identification breakdown of surveys in Michigan, and it's always 43 Democrat, 38 Republican, every survey, there's something wrong with that survey. <laughs> I mean, it's not random. It should be, if it's a random sample, it should be moving all over the place. Otherwise, they're waiting on party identification, which is also a total no-no, according to like a lot of APOR or American Association of Public Opinion Research. So I, first of all, there's always someone's hand on, or thumb on the scale. That's the first thing you got to know. Two, you got to look. So I, you just look at the cross tabs because to me, it's not so much what the, what the overall 45, 55, but among certain groups, where are the trends? Because depending on what the sample, and those are smaller samples, but there's something in there that you can parse out. Now, I, I, I'm much more of a person who looks at the average, you know, you know, Nate, whatever, Nate Silver is East Lansing, you know, his dad was in the political science department at Michigan State. Um, we have a long line of people <laughs> arguing that we should, you know, don't look at just one poll. Um, but, it, you know, it's to me, uh, but that's also what I study. So any one poll is like, it's like candy. So I'm like always excited about it. So for someone who doesn't have access to the cross tabs, just your general, yeah, I don't know. So like what are they? Do, do so they just, I don't believe. First of all, yes, I would say this: one, certain pollsters provide their data or provide the cross tabs. That's great. I can say what I do and do not believe. Other people don't. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is that some people just provide numbers, top line numbers. I don't know. These people say they have cell phone coverage. I don't know how they get cell phones. Um, I had a 614 area coach, Columbus, Ohio, for like four or five years in this, living in this state. Um, I know tons of people who live outside the state with a 616 or 517 or whatnot. Uh, I don't, some, you know, it's, it's really high. Even in that case, you have no knowledge. Um, so to me, I always, you take it with a grain of salt, but it's information. Like it's, it's, it's something. Uh, and still, when you look at the average, they do fairly well. And the polls haven't gotten worse. Michigan, though, tends to be a harder state to poll. Why is that? Uh, geographic distribution of certain individuals. Uh, we have late registration for some voters tend to only get registered right before the election, so they're kind of missed out. Um, I mean, we're not as we're not as bad as some states. South Carolina is notoriously a bad state to poll. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we're not as bad as some of these, but uh, it's just um, if you look at the grade of like the pollsters, you know, we do OK, but not the greatest. It's partly, you know, just where people live, how transitional the population is, stuff like that. I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a it's a big question. So how often do you get a you, you do quite a bit of press interviews? You know, there are reporters calling to get yes. your take. How many times do you have to try to reset the whole conversation because you're finding that they're yeah, I, they're I'm not they're not getting it? I'm sorry. Yeah, I I, I want to apologize to them. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so one thing is, I, I mean, I don't, I, some people get this. I mean, my, there's people who are experts in politics who are probably your listeners who know how to play the game. You know, we talk more about, like, what is the game and how we might change it and how we may not change it and what would and would not work. So then you get a lot of questions about, say, the game, you know. And the other thing that happens is there's a lot of assumptions built in. So, like, gerrymandering. The questions about gerrymandering this year. Whew. Um, <laughs> you know, they had already, they're already coming to me with a point of view that is built on assumptions that are based on arguments that may or may not be true, and they just want comments about assuming these assumptions are true. Yeah, so that, that often happens. Usually I just kind of... Um, you know, I understand helping people out and whatnot, uh, but it's, it's, yeah, I, I often go on like 30, 40 minute rants or something. <laughs> I mean, not like huge rants, but some sort of rant, you know, uh, just re yeah, resetting it. So. Well, that, now I feel like everything I read in those Vox articles probably was wrong. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, you have to. Can, can I ask you about? Can, can we get some clarification? One, are independents going up or down? Because that was one of the one. There was two Vox articles, and one of them said independent voters are going up, but um, people who identify as independent are going right. up, but they are increasingly right. voting for one party or the other. That's right. Okay. The, the extinct comment is what people get mad about. It's the cost-benefit analysis of targeting. But yes, so people, if you ask them if you're a Democrat or Republican, less likely to say either, mm -hmm. more likely to say I'm independent. People hate parties more. They don't like par political parties. However, if you look at their behavior and their loyalties in terms of how they actually process opinions and stuff, they are, they are more loyal in their behavior than what we've seen in previous years that we've ever had surveys. So although people in their hearts are not partisans, in their, in their behaviors, they don't, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I just vote for them all the time. Or I'm not a Democrat, but, you know, those Republicans never get their act together. And it's always this, so that's the worst thing because it's an utter detachment from both parties. And it's a blaming of both parties instead of like, okay, this is the best one for me. I'm going to try to work and change it to make it better. Right. So I hear that and I think that's if that's happening that has to be unstable long term. I got I got to think people are going to go grow increasingly dissatisfied with the choices they're making and that will manifest itself in some way, be it a viable third party or maybe primary elections become So people are as fine with their own party. Those ratings have not gone down but they are less satisfied with the other party. Okay. And if you look at people who are independents and you look at what their vote choice are, they s express similar levels of satisfaction with their choice, just with the choice they made, but not of the options. Now, generally, yes, people complain about the political parties, but that is, when you ask those questions, it's unclear if they just don't like the con topic of conversation that political parties discuss or the actual behaviors. So while there are a lot of people... So one question that people have been looking at is this question about whether you, would you allow your child to date someone of a different party? And then, you know, more and more people are saying no to that question. Oh, so that means people, there's problems, like people hate the other party. But if you ask anyone who's active in politics, they're also like, no, 
I don't want my kid dating someone who's active in politics. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so there's sort of this is this about partisanship or is this about politics? Yeah. So it's it's a weird we don't really know. There's a lot that's what scholars get paid to or I guess get paid. I don't know. They have fun on <laughs> just going off on you know, asking these questions and seeing how divided things are in the family sense. Do you think things are really as divided as it seems or is social media and the fact that we all have information in our faces all the time, like impacting it and making it seem way worse than it is? I think people are less open to change. Uh, I think people are more confident in their opinions because whether they are as informed as they should be, they feel like they get a lot more information, so they feel like they are informed. And so therefore, since I've read a lot on this, Dr. Google, right? Yeah, I don't need to. I hear all the time. I don't need to change my opinion. Like, what can you bring to the table that would change my mind? And so people are more confident in their opinions and less open to hear. Now, there are certain ways you can get around that. Uh, There are certain, you know, forums or outlets or events that can change that and make people rethink things. In fact, national emergencies and those sorts of things, biologically speaking, supposedly, we're ultimately put in shock, but we suddenly reassess things. We cut off our predispositions and suddenly, so like, suddenly you start reassessing information, you cut off and you think again. And so those types of events can sometimes push people to rethink things. Hmm. But right now, people are really, really confident in what they think. Well, thanks for stopping by. Okay. This is fascinating. Corey Smith, um, Ph.D. professor, Department of Political Science at Michigan State University, talking polls, talking politics. Uh, we'll be right back. And it's Tom Arnold. All right. Hey, Matt Resch, Rides with Fresh, book by Stephanie. Your podcast, you got an amazing new podcast. Uh, don't mention Matt. Do not mention. I'm not mentioning. No, uh, I'm not mentioning anybody. I'm not. I'm not mentioning Stephanie. I'm taking back that I mentioned Stephanie. I apologize. Matt Fresh, Resh, Rhett, Matt Resh, Rides with Fresh. You got a new podcast, all right? It's called Cold Cold Oatmeal. Very original name. It's a funny name. It's a funny name. It's like Cold. Uh, it's like what's that Kelsey Grammer song? Anyway. Scrambled eggs and whatever. It's a podcast. It sounds funny, buddy. You know what? I had a podcast. You do know, the, the key to a podcast, keeping it on the air, is not talking all the time like I did and listening. People told me, uh, my wife told me all I did was talk. I was a terrible host and I talked all the time. But uh, I'm sure you're a great host. You're from Michigan. So you know a lot of things. You can have people on your show. Uh, interesting people. I bet you have all kinds of interesting people. And uh, today is the 21st anniversary to when my buddy uh, Chris Farley died. Him, well, I guess you can't have him on the show. That's us at Woodstock, the second Woodstock. We were two hosts of that. You remember Chris Farley? He's a good guy. Have him on. Hell, they, look at these guys. Oh, there's old Bradley Cooper. There's a movie we did together. Uh, there's Dak Shepard. He's from Michigan. Have him on. There's some of my buddies there, uh, some Michigan guys. Uh, Young Guns, that was called. It was a terrible movie. We were all in it. They're good. I'm looking over here. Um, where's Arnold Schwarzenegger? Uh, let's see where he is. I got a bunch of pictures of him. Too many of him. Um, there's a picture. There he is. We got cowboy hats on. 
Casey is back there. Anyway, I bet you got a million guests. You probably don't want celebrities anyway. They suck. You're going to be great. You probably are great. Uh, Matt Resch, I'm going to look you up, buddy. Have a great day, Tom Arnold. And if you do good, you win one of these podcast awards. They're called the Golden Globes. I have two of them. How hard can they be to get? All right, buddy. I love you. Good luck. That's funnier every time I hear it. <laughs> Here's a picture of Bradley Cooper. <laughs> we are totally having Chris Farley on. <laughs> <laughs> he was on the short list. I'm impressed oh. he knew that Dak Shepard was from Michigan. Is he? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I didn't know that until he, he said yeah, that. Well. I know yeah. that. Yeah, so that was Tom Arnold, believe it or not, in the in the flesh. Rhymes with fresh. <laughs> <laughs> friend of the podcast. <laughs> friend of the podcast. Yeah. Friend of Marla. A friend of Marla. They got together. It really is a shame that Stephanie can't be here because this was apparently all of her her mastermind. What is this? So this is explain. This is cameo. Cameo. This was your Christmas <coughs> gift. Yeah. All of you to me. Do you want the whole story? Sure. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole story is the best part, I think, because is, is, we were We talking. did go along with Corey, so we right. don't have a bazillion okay. minutes. But. Well, I'll tell you quickly that Stephanie's original idea for your Christmas gift was to identify somebody you, you treasured and to surprise you with them sitting in the chair for a surprise podcast taping. Um, and the rest of us quickly said, You wisely decided that that would have <coughs> yeah. been a career-ending move. Right, but but we'd seen in the news that Brett Favre had almost suffered his own career-ending move um, by recording a ill-conceived video through a website called Cameo. And so we thought, wow, if celebrities are really shilling for crazy stuff on Cameo, let's check it out. And, and uh, we discovered some top-notch talent, friends of the podcast, and we're proud to have their... Um, their ears. How long did it take? How long did it take you to come up with Tom Arnold? Uh, was he the first one that like? No, we had he, a. She had a long <coughs> list of people. We had a long list, but I think Tom Arnold was on the yes list immediately as soon yes. as we saw that Tom Arnold was um, available. Clearly, we, clearly we know why. Tom <laughs> yes. Arnold was the only one I had any interest in. Uh, I was yeah, I was the only one who really didn't want to do it. Yeah, and Stephanie strong armed us into it, and so. Here we are. <laughs> but, but Matt loved it. I did love it. So it I hadn't laughed that hard in a long time. Yeah, but not for the reasons that Stephanie thought he'd love it. What? What, I, what did she think? He loves it because it's terrible. It's not... <laughs> he doesn't love it because it's amazing. Like, it's terrible. I think that, I think that was... First of all, it, Mr. Arnold, I don't think it was terrible at all. Thank you for listening. Uh, <laughs> but I think that was the... I, that's... Certainly no, a preponderance no. of the idea was that, oh, it would certainly be weird to have Marla Maples on the podcast. Let's do it. Let's do weird. And she wound up being Let's lovely. Except weird. Stephanie right. doesn't do weird. No, no. Stephanie's she like, does this would be sincere. great. This would be, this would be a great endorsement <laughs> yeah. for us. It was like, yeah, no. Hi, it Matt. Turned, it, Hi, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Marla Maples. Huh. Oh, you sound just like her. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> The, the only the only bummer in the entire process was that Chumley turned us down. I don't know why. He he didn't offer <laughs> a reason. Is he in jail? Is he? Maybe that's why he turned us <laughs> down. <laughs> that I could maybe know. be why. I thought I read a story a few months ago. Well, you got to you got to pay extra to get, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> to get, to get the, the one phone call. Jail. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it was a it was a great great Christmas present. I've been waiting for this episode ever since you guys gave me that. This is awesome. Merry Christmas. Thank you. I like, too, that you bought a backup gift. 
just in, <laughs> just in case. We were not sure how that would go. Just in case. Yeah. It was it was very high shelf vodka, right? Joe, was it vodka? It was called Death Knell. I'm not sure what shelf. I don't know, I don't know what it shelf was, it is, but it was the shelf that. They told me to buy kill, it. Kill <laughs> me quickly, vodka. I don't know. It was, I don't know. It had death, death by vodka. Death door. Death door. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. It had something fatalistic in the name, which is perfect because if the if the first idea stunk, then he could just drown his sorrows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what Tom Arnold did. Yes. Perhaps <laughs> he had been drowning his sorrows for a while. On. Yes. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Laura. Thanks for not firing any of us. <laughs> Especially <laughs> me. <laughs> just clarify that. Just Nikki. Just, just thank me. you for not firing me. Okay. Appreciate it. Well, Laura, your first episode. Welcome to the team. Thank you. Anything you want to tell us about yourself or tell our dozens of listeners? Um, or to Tom Arnold? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm happy to be here. Um Okay, good. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. Excellent. Very good. <laughs> dude, dude, don't don't lean into it. Come on. What what else? Um recovering political junkie. Obviously, I uh, got a little tired of it um unlike our friend who was just here. So, um excited to work in a little slower pace than dog years for the next little bit here. I'm still pretty tired from the last four and a half years. Well, we're happy to have you. Thank you. Stephanie, we hope you feel better soon. Corey. She's not going to listen to this. No, I know, but <laughs> we could say, what am I going to say? <laughs> Stephanie, hope you never feel better soon. <laughs> um, hope you feel better, Steph. Corey, uh was a pleasure uh, to talk to him and to learn a little bit from him. Uh, Zach weaseled his way back onto the podcast. Tom Arnold, Marla Maples, who knows? Who, who, there might be more people. We never know. Anyway, you're listening to the Cold Open Pot. Old, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm impersonating Tom Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to the Cold Oatmeal Podcast from the Rest Strategies Rhymes with Fresh Strategies uh, team. And we'll talk to you next time. Hey, Matt Resch, I hear you are a stud. That's right. Little Bird told me you're a huge Cubs fan, you've got this successful PR and public affairs firm in Michigan, and you've got this awesome podcast called Cold Oatmeal. Well, this is David Kaplan at ESPN 1000 and NBC Sports Chicago, and if you're a Cubs fan, you probably get to see me on Cubs pre and post, and I just wanted to wish you a happy holiday. Hope you have a great holiday season, a happy, healthy new year. I hope your podcast keeps kicking butt, and I hope your PR and public affairs firm does amazing stuff so somebody out there who asked me not to tell you who they were thinks you're awesome so i'm just letting you know you're a stud happy holidays go cubs see you buddy scrambled eggs all over my face what is a boy to do frazier has left